Great. Well, let me add my welcome to that that's already been given. It's really great to be with you here from uh, Brighton. And um, my job over there, I oversee the preaching and teaching in our church. And I also oversee uh, a thing called the internship, which is where we take people on for varying lengths of time, give them theological training, training in life, various, uh, people from all walks of life. And um, I just want to draw your attention to one thing I brought along with me, which is this, this little book, which I think we have some copies of at the back. This is, um, this is by my friend Edward, which um, he teaches the church history part on our internship training, and he's got a book forthcoming. This is a sample chapter that he wanted me to bring along for anyone who's interested in church history, and especially in relating church history in simple language, in simple terms. You know, it's important to see, as, as the title says, that we're rooted. We're rooted in something that has a history, that has a legacy, and we just get a chance to live out faithfulness to God in the time that we live. So, that's a, a bit, little bit about me. Please feel free to come and ask more and uh, to talk about the church, uh, which I'm going to refer to a fair bit as well. It's a, a church that I've been a member of for 15 years and um, served in various roles, uh, seen some great things happen. Some of the people who are members of this church have been members in Brighton as well, so I feel like I'm amongst friends. So it's great to be here with you. Please do talk to me about anything that interests you in what I say. We're going to start a new series uh, today, which is, which is called Prayer. Uh, you might recognize the design here. There's, uh, there's, there's not, too many, not too many actual components I've noticed on this. It's just tools and uh, bolts and things, but you, you get the conceit. What we're going to do is deconstruct in some way the very famous Lord's Prayer over these coming weeks. I believe Len's going to be speaking as well. My friend Steve from Brighton's coming over next week as well to speak on the second part. And we're going to go in fine detail through this prayer. And I want you to know up front that I want two things to happen today. I want your personal prayer life with God to be blessed and enriched. And if you don't know what I mean by prayer life, I want you to realize that you can have such a thing today. You can have a life in which God is speaking to you constantly giving you direction, upsetting your life in some ways. But that's good because he's the living God. You want that. If, if there is a living God, you want him speaking into your life and changing it and causing you to walk in his ways. The second thing I want is for this to become a praying church in a way that takes it to a whole other level. Now, I've seen something of that in the church that I'm a member of. I've, I've, I know what it's like to be in an atmosphere of prayer as a people not just on my own, but actually knowing that there's brothers and sisters who trust in God in the same way I do and who pray huge prayers for the sake of the city that we live in, in Brighton, and for the sake of the church that we're building. And we recognize, as Len said earlier, that it is God who is building his church, that it's Jesus who's doing it. If that's the case, then we need to be going to the one who actually has the blueprints, who has the materials, and asking him, build your church. Asking him for wisdom, how should we play our part in building it? So what we're going to do is look at just one verse from Matthew 6, at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Don't worry, we'll look at lots of other verses as we go along. But we're going to initially look at this verse, Matthew 6, verse 9, where the Lord Jesus answers uh, the question that will be in the disciples' minds and in their hearts, how do we pray? How is, what is the right way to approach this relationship with God? It says here in Matthew 6, verse 9, Pray then like this. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Lord, we, we want to invite you to come and speak to us. Lord, we recognize that you're a God who lives and that you're a rewarder of those who seek you. And God, I want to pray for the, every, every person represented here in this room. I want to pray for the one who has the most confidence to hear God, to hear you clear as a bell today. And I want to pray for the person who has the least confidence to hear you, to be pleasantly surprised, to be knocked off their feet by the fact that you are a God who speaks now. You are a living God who has desires, who has a will, who intends good towards all of his creation, who intends good towards the city of Amsterdam. Lord, we pray that you come and speak in mighty power for your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. On the 22nd of March this year, I was taking a group around the British Museum. Uh, the British Museum is fascinating. Hands up who's been there. Yeah, I mean, it is just amazing. The stuff that we've stolen from everywhere in the world. And it's all there. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing that they put it on display. If it was me who had stolen all that stuff, I'd have it in secret. But they have it, they have it out there. Amazing stuff, biblical stuff, stuff from ancient civilizations a catalog of humanity. So we were going rounds and we were, we were enjoying looking at all the stuff we had stolen and we, we started getting messages come through on our phone. You know how news things pop up and they were just pinging through on our phones. And it said there's been an attack on Westminster Bridge. And this, this hard news to um, digest. And if, if, if you notice with these things, news comes through like a drip feed. It's only a tiny bit. It says there's, there's some sort of commotion. Shots were fired. And we found out later that a man had taken a car. He'd driven up from Brighton, in fact. He'd, he'd come up earlier in the day, and he'd killed loads of people on the bridge, on Westminster Bridge. He'd driven along, and then he had finally had stabbed a police officer. And he had been shot dead uh, himself, the attacker. And uh, it was very sobering to be in London in, you know, not more than a couple of miles away from where this dreadful thing was happening again. And I'm sorry to say that that wasn't the last thing that has happened in London this year. It's been it's scary. And what you notice is people react quickly. On social media, your stream starts filling up. And one of the hashtags that I saw repeatedly was pray for London. Hashtag pray for London. It wasn't the first time I'd seen this, actually. Um, I can remember as far back as the, there was a, a summer of rioting in 2011. Um, and due to anger at the austerity in the country and behavior of the police and various things that were happening, um, people, people were rioting and people were immediately putting on, on social media, pray for London, hashtag pray for London. And this was, it was interesting to note the difference between 2011 and 2017. Because in 2011, you immediately had this huge backlash of people saying, don't just pray, do something. You know, hashtag pray for London. You know. And people were upset about this. So why are you praying? You're going in, getting on your knees and praying to, praying to your sky god, uh, your sky dad, and uh, you're not out there fixing things. You're not doing what should be done. The big difference with this year that I've noticed is there's not so much of that. There's not so much of it because people are really reaching out and saying, actually, that these things act like wake-up calls that cause us maybe to find God, of course, but definitely to reach out beyond yourself 
There's a sense of helplessness. When an attack happens, when something like this goes on, there's, for everyone, for the Christian, for, for the per person who doesn't believe, everyone wants to reach beyond themselves because they realize that they are not sufficient for the problems in the world, for the problems in their city, to do the things that need to be done. And then they look as well at those who have faith who are saying, let's pray for London, and they don't actually mock it so much now. They're actually, okay, there's something, there's something in this. There's something in, maybe, maybe in the God that you worship, but definitely in this reaching beyond yourself. I understand what you're trying to do. So I would have preached this message a few years ago, saying, talking about why we should pray. I don't feel like I have to do that at the moment. I think it's kind of obvious that the world's out of hand. The West is out of hand. There are problems that are beyond us. There, there is a reaching out beyond ourselves that needs to be done. And people are doing that in different ways. It seems like we have an election every other week in Britain at the moment. They're not much fun, you know? Just vote for people who can, who can be a functional savior, who can be something that will push things forward. There is a reaching out beyond yourself. So I don't preach this as a how to pray or why, why should you pray? More as a how to pray. It's more as a answering the question that Jesus says when he says, pray then like this. He's telling you how to pray, not whether you should. I think even if you're very cynical about prayer here today, you need to just rest in your heart that it is always, because of the stakes, always worth the shot. It's always worth the gamble. Whether you're a Christian who has become disillusioned with God's ability to hear you, or someone who doesn't reach out, or someone who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, I would still say, do it anyway. Reach out and prove me wrong. Reach out, prove yourself wrong. You will prove yourself wrong because he lives. He loves to rush to those who even tiptoe towards him. So this is a how to pray. I'm glad I can preach it like this because that's how it is in the text. That's how it is in the Bible. Jesus points to two ways not to pray before he tells you how to pray. The first one is in uh, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 6. It says this. Here we go. When you pray, you mustn't be like the hypocrites. These are people, he has specific people in mind, not just general hypocrites. He has specific people in, in his time and place. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Okay, stay with me. This might not happen so much now. It might not be that you see people standing to look good when they pray. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So the interesting thing about that is that they, these people, you have to cast your mind back to them, they set out to look religious, and that was a good thing socially. Now, it's very hard to get our heads around because even coming to a church, you have to sort of like tiptoe in, you know, hope no one from work sees you, you know? It's a different era. It's a strange era that we live in with regards to this, but the principle still stands. What Jesus is saying, these people, this group, they wish to pray in public so they look good in front of people. The aim of their hearts is to be right with people, is to be powered by the approval of humans. That includes your own approval, but those looking on. And they would do this by going out and praying in public. We can do it in other ways by not seeking God's reward. We, like, like these, they, they pray in public, 
And Jesus says they have their reward because people see them. That's what they wanted. They wanted human approval. We can pray in a way that satisfies ourselves, that ticks a box, that is mechanical, and just, just goes on as a routine. We can also look to human solutions, and both of these fall under what he's saying not to do. Don't do things for human approval, and especially don't do prayer for human approval. Don't do reaching out beyond yourself for salvation and solution for human approval or depending on human power, okay? Secondly, he says that you don't do this in a, trying to impress God in a self-powered manner. So this is in verses seven to eight. It says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, that's as the other nations uh, do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And uh, don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This tells you a little bit about God. It does a little bit of theology for you. God knows what you need before you ask him. You're not asking to impress him or inform him. That's not what's happening. When you say, our father in heaven, he doesn't suddenly wake up. Oh, oh, right, we're talking. He knows all. He sees your needs. He hears your heart. And he calls it out. He is enveloping you in a process of prayer. That's what's happening. He's not doing it, you're not doing it just for your own good, but you're certainly not doing it to impress God. You're not doing it so that there's more money in the box. He's, he accepts you by Christ. He accepts you by the blood of Christ. You're washed clean. You're brought into life in all of its fullness immediately. You don't work your way up. You don't earn it. So you're not trying to impress God with your many words. C.S. Lewis, the, the famous writer, puts it like this. He says, an ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he's a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside of him. But he also knows that all real knowledge of God comes through Christ the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, is helping him to pray, and is praying for him. You see what is happening? God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal which he is trying to reach. God is the thing inside of him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or the bridge along which he's being pushed to that goal. And here's the conclusion so that the threefold life of the threefold, three-personal being is actually going on in that little ordinary bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. That's the reality of what's happening, friends. When we enter into prayer, we're being moved by God into prayer. We're being disrupted sometimes. I feel this quite often. I feel actually God taking planks out from under me, causing my security to go because he wants me to pray. He wants me to move in the way that he is going. We won't do that naturally. You won't do it. We, don't, we like equilibrium. We like it when things are going all right. We like to say to each other, I don't know what the greeting is here, but we, we say in England, all right. We just say, all right. You say in France, ça va. You, you, you know, is it going right? Is it going along? God's not interested in that question. He's not interested in whether things are going right. You know, he cares for you more than that. 
He doesn't care just enough to say, are things going right? Is it ticking over? Is, 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 is it working? Is the house of cards standing? No, he's going to pull the bottom card out. He's going, going to say, come to me. Come to me. Depend on me. I am solid. You're not. If you depend on yourself, if you try and walk in the way that you have planned, the ambitions that you have, you're going to, you're going to get to you. If you are moved by me, you're going to get to me. You're going to live in all eternity with the one who made you, the one who loves you, the one who loves all the people that you have in your circle who are in contact with you and wants to move you in ways that you can't imagine. That might not be that comfortable. Am I selling this? I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Selling discomfort. There we go. But it's good, and I, I wouldn't trade it. You know, I've, I've had sleepless nights because of this. I've had upset health I've had relationships that, that go completely the wrong way, and I've realized God is waking me up. He wants me to call on his name. He wants me to call on him. I, I had a friend at university who, she went on a placement year. She had made a sort of commitment to Christ just prior to going. I felt myself wake up in the night, forced by God to pray for her week on week. I, I didn't even like her. I, 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 it was just a housemate, someone, someone who had put across my path, and he, said, he, he had intended, she's going to be mine, and you're going to pray her in. You're going to do this. Well, praise God, she, she, she loves the Lord. She lives a life in devotion to Christ. She lives in my neighborhood in, in Brighton, and she's a wonderful sister in the Lord, and she does the same for other people because she knows that God's way is best. It's not, it's not our way. It's not our way. He wakes us up. He forces us down the road. And it is life in all its fullness. It's not just, oh, he makes you uncomfortable and that's it. He makes you uncomfortable and brings you into the life with, which is like a mountaintop view where you were in an underground station. He, he, he absolutely blasts you out of your, your own small ideas. This is prayer, friends. This is, this is what I mean by prayer. Prayer is being enveloped in the life of God as an individual, but also corporately. This is, as I say, how my church was founded. My church, in some ways, 30 years old now, uh, the church is, I'm older, <laughs> but the church itself could be viewed as an extension of one man's prayer life. So there was a guy who, uh, who felt God calling him to found it. Okay, he gave him other brothers around him. The three of them started praying together and they, through the power of God, they saw buildings inherited. I can, I can remember one story that I'll share with you. They, the three of them were praying because um, they, they were in a congregation like this and they were starting to need a building, they were starting to need somewhere. Um, and they started praying together specifically for a building which they knew had a dying church congregation in it. It was a congregation that was, that was falling down. And they, they started praying together, God, you know, give us this building, give us this building. And they were praying fervently together. And one of them suddenly said to the other two, stop. We have it. The Lord has given to us. <laughs> the Lord has given us the building. And it was an amazing moment. An hour later, the man who owned the other building phoned up and said, we want to give you this building. It's a multi-million pound building, and we'll give it to you for one pound. We want, we want to sign it over. We see that God is building a church with you guys. And we, we have a building but no congregation, come and have it. That's the sort of prayer I'm talking about, being moved along by God as a people. There might be a complaint here because 
Jesus does actually say, when you pray, go into your room in secret and close the door. So you can think to yourself, that must mean that I'm not supposed to share prayer with anyone. No, that's not true. You read the book of Acts, you see any time that pressure comes, any time that pleasure comes, they are together praying and worshiping. Prayer is part of the corporate life of a church. In fact, I would say it is the lifeblood of a church. The size of your prayer meeting is actually the size of your church. That's the real church. The ones who were before God saying, your world, your church, we're your people, do what you will, worshiping, praying, hearing from him, and being moved by him. That's, there's a Psalm 127 which says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. It's a great opening verse because it says, unless it's God's thing that he's doing, then you're working in vain, but you should be working. Do you see what I mean? There's this, this tension, this paradox that says, unless God does it, it doesn't happen, but the builders have got to be there too. The hands, the feet, those who are on the deck doing the will of God. And we can see that this is supposed to be public prayer as well as private because he says go into your room in secret close the door and pray our father our father not go and pray my father in heaven you're holy let your name be made holy no he's saying you pray our father he's our father where does the our come from who's he speaking of He's speaking of the God of Israel. He's speaking of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the patriarchs. And God is described as a father in the Old Testament. That's the interesting thing. Some people try and say, he's saying, pray our father, and this is new. This is just Jesus saying our father, because Jesus is the son of God, and he's saying, now you're my brothers and sisters, so you have the same father. He is saying that, but you see in the Old Testament, God referred to as father of Israel. He's the father of the people that he's called out. To, he said, I'm going to bless you. He says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. They've been taken. They've been taken, given the very words of God. I'm going to bless you with knowledge of me, experience of me, so that the world will experience me. Blessed to be a blessing. That's God's modus operandi with the church now. That's the same thing. And... He is saying here, when he says, our father, he's saying, you've got access to this God. The relationship between you and him is restored. The blessed to be a blessing principle is happening now with you. And you're, it's not because of you. It's not your performance. It's not how good you are at it. It's not, you're not being judged on how well you have witnessed or how well you've done these things. It is his work. You are turning up. That's it, you're turning up in prayer. That's, that's what we do as a church, we turn up. We turn up and he does it. He moves us, he moves us into the mission of God. So we should be an organic body, recognizing that God is doing it, that even as the apostle Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, one person comes along and plants the seed, someone else comes along and waters it, but it's God who gives the growth. And what he means is a teacher comes along and tells you this bit, someone else will fill in some more gaps, you'll get some revelation on things, but because of God, he's the one who's doing it. He's, friends, for each life here, he has committed to finishing the work that he started in you. It says that, it says, 
he who started a good work in you will see it through to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. That's good news. It's good news that he's saved you, that he's fully qualified you, that he's loved you, that he hasn't held back anything against you. He does, he's not holding on to a grudge. We're quite good at that. But he has said, as far as the east is from the west, your sins are forgiven. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today, that is your lot. That's what you have access to. A father who you can say, our father. I've got brothers and sisters around me. He's our father. And he's the one who's speaking. He's the one who's ruling. Let me move on. Hallowed be your name. That's the, that's the second part. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed um, is an interesting word. I don't think it's a word that we use commonly in English. Um, it means to make holy. Make your name holy. That's strange because God's name, by very definition, is holy. God's name is in a category all of its own. You have things that are good, things that are evil, and things that are holy. It's not, it's not to say things that are holy are just the top of the good category. They're just completely other. They are of a God nature. So what's being said here? Make your name holy. Well, it's the counterpoint to saying, I depend on me. It's the counterpoint to saying, I am trying to impress you with the number of my words the counterpoint to those ways not to pray. When you say, make your name holy, it means put your name back in the right place for me. <laughs> it's always in the right place, objectively speaking, for God. He knows his name is holy. You don't have to say, first things first, can I pray that you make your name holy again? He's like, no, I'm going to make people see that my name is holy again. I'm going to make you see that my name is holy again. So that is the answer to that prayer. In Ezekiel 36, 23, you have a bit of an insight into this. It says, this is the Lord speaking. He says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. This is the mission that he's about in the earth at all times. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned. That has been, it is this, but it's been treated as this. Sound familiar? It is this that's been treated as this. It's been profaned among the nations in which you, and he's speaking to his people, you church, you holy people of God, you have profaned among them. So they've profaned the name of God, but you've got to recognize that judgment starts at the house of God. I've profaned the name of God. That's how you start the, thing, start the prayer. It, it might not be that you've blasphemed or intentionally done that, but just by thinking that some, some obstacle is not overcomable, or distrusting, or just feeling faint. Now, he does, he's not there saying, cracking the whip, saying, you should have held it holy, you should have held it holy. We're saying, we know what we need. We need the name of God as holy in our sight again. Yeah. We need that because that, you are the glory of your people and you're the lifter of their heads. That's what you want to do here today and every day for the believer. That's why we should pray the prayer often. Why we should be saying, hallowed be your name. Switch me again. It's my, your name's become, might not have even become evil. It might become good to me. Not enough. You can't say, good be your name. It's better. Holy. And only he can give you that revelation. Only he can cause that insight to come back. But he wants to. That's the thing. It's not that you have to pray this prayer in a special way. When I say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're back. He said, yes, you get it. It's a reminder to you intellectually, but it is a work of the Spirit internally. 
replacing, uh, replacing the name of God as holy at the top. So, I mean, a good way of illustrating this is actually to think of a time when you've had too much to do. Think of, a time, think of one of those weeks where you've got to be there, then there, then there, then there, and you've got to look after this person and uh, do, do this and get that deadline reached, get this thing submitted, you know, one thing after another. I don't know what your way of reacting to that kind of busyness is, but I can tell you mine, and it's to just go into crisis mode where, where I, my wife could be talking to me and I'm kind of just in the zone, thinking, thinking. Okay, first it's this, then it's that, then I've got to catch this plane, then I've got to do that, then I, if I miss that tram, it's going to be a problem. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking through the mechanics of how the thing's going to work. And when you're a father, you get other responsibilities, you're thinking about other people as well. Oh, she's got to be there, she's got to be there. And all of that can happen, and your head can go down. And you can get into this place where actually, without even wanting other things to take the place of God, place of God as provider, as savior, as omniscient, all-knowing one, who has everything in his hands, who cares for you, it can go out the window. And it can go out the window for different reasons. You might not be quite as systematic as me. You might, when, when you've got a lot on your plate, you might react in another way. You might go straight to God. Congratulations, the right answer. But I, I just notice it's not a reflex with me. It's not a reflex, but it is the answer. Uh, it will be the case where things will, things will start coming from each side and more pressure will come on and I will try to cope and I'll try and make things work. And what, what the Lord is saying is come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The reason he gives you rest is not because everything disappears. He gives you perspective. He re you realize it's in his hands. He's the one who is causing me to win victories because he's caught, he sees the shortcut. He sees the way around. He sees things that I don't see at all. He has the vantage point. And more than that, he loves me. And he gave himself for me, as it says in Galatians 2.20. He loved me and he gave himself for me. I come back to that all the time. That fuels my prayer. I can pray to someone who loved me and gave himself for me. So you have to trust God, but you also have to despair of yourself. That one's tougher for some than others. Despairing of myself is often quite tough for me because I just go into that mode. I start trying to fix things. I start trying to make it work. You need to trust God, amen? You need to despair of yourself, amen? There needs to be, and I'm not just being depressive. I'm not, I'm not just saying you should think you're terrible. I'm saying you shouldn't think of yourself very often. You should think of him a lot. That's, that's a good saying to remember, actually. Being humble is not thinking nothing of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself very often. That's important. Let me just end off by talking about the nature of the relationship that we have with this father then. Two terms that I want to share with you. First one is adoption. Very important New Testament doctrine. Very important teaching in Christianity, that of being adopted by God. So in Ephesians 1 verse 3, we read that God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have established that, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will. That's a dense sentence, but let me just pick it apart. It's the, if we go back to it. The purpose of his will. This is what he wanted to do. This is, this is his design. It's not him patching up a creation gone wrong. This is what he always, from eternity past, wanted to do. It is the purpose of his will to do what? To predestine us to be adopted, to be brought in. Now, in the, the ancient culture to which this is written, adoption is stronger than natural sonship. It was possible as a son in, in the Roman world to divorce your parents. It's possible to do that. If you were adopted, it wasn't possible. It's stronger. God wanted the strongest possible sonship for each one of us. And I say that to the ladies as well, because to be a son is to be an heir in this culture. He wants the strongest possible inheritance to you and the strongest possible security to you. That you could inherit everything that the Lord Jesus Christ himself inherits. That the Lord could be the first among many brothers and sisters. So adoption, we have a security. The second thing I want to say about this uh, approach to God and the relationship is that we have access. So adoption by God and access to God. Hopefully this should be apparent anyway from what's uh, been said. But let me just share a couple of verses. The first one is Ephesians 3 verse 12 that says, In him we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have access into the very heart of God. Romans 5 verse 2. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's a place to stand, not deviate from. Stay in the grace of God. This is said other places in the New Testament. Keep yourself in the grace of God. That doesn't mean behave yourself, by the way. We can hear that when people say, keep yourself in the grace of God, mind your manners, watch how you behave. That's not what's being said. It's saying, stay with the free gift of God's acceptance of you. Stay on that firm ground. Don't deviate with your own efforts, trying to please God or trying to be accepted. You are accepted. You're forgiven. His name is holy. Hallowed be your name. We want to reach out for that. Let me just close off with one final passage of scripture and give you the exhortation to draw near to God, to lift up your hearts to the Lord, lift up your hearts to Christ again as we take communion together. And uh, consider these words from Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clear from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let me just pray as we come to communion. I think Len's going to lead us in communion, but I'll just pray. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Thank you that you are our Father. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for all of his blessings to us here. We come to the table now to participate in him, to be fed and watered by the living God once again, by fellowship with you. We thank you so much for your care over our lives. Lord, I pray for the, the person who believes that care the least today, saying, I'm not worthy of this love of God. 
Lord, we confess none of us are worthy in and of ourselves. We are made worthy by the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who qualifies us to the utmost. Bless us this morning and as we go on. In Jesus' name, amen.